The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is, of course, Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest, a member of the Society of St. Pius V, and he's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you? Doing well, Father. Good. Great to be Good here. Good to see you. Yeah. Great to be back. By the way, yeah, before we get started, could I just mention uh, a couple of things? I understand we had a question come in about uh, why we have the Bible underneath the Catechism of the Council of Trent. That's right. And why it's not the reverse. Well, we might not necessarily have really put a lot of thought into putting the books on a table, but the Bible was the first volume to appear on our table, and uh, the Catechism of the Council of Trent followed. But it seems rather fitting because the Catechism of the Council of Trent contains the doctrines of the faith, which rest upon the foundations of divine revelation. And so um, perhaps symbolically one might look upon it as the fact that our, our faith as Catholics rest, does rest securely upon sacred scripture and, of course, sacred tradition as well. And here we have uh, that actually happening here in terms of the physical book representing our faith, the Catechism of the Council of Trent, and the Bible, Sacred Scripture, the Word of God, supporting it. And also, by the way, I understand someone wrote in wanting to know if the water in the glasses was real, okay? <laughs> it's not uh, just a drop. No, I don't know if the individual is a phenomenalist, <laughs> just wondering if it's imaginary water. Or if it's uh, water just for show, uh, I guess maybe just to demonstrate oh, that wow. it's actual water and to show our gratitude for our gracious host, we can there we go. take advantage of it and now demonstrate that uh, hopefully that, that is adequate to show that yes, it is, it is actual H2O. There we go. And uh, actually quite helpful, be sure. And after the show, mm -hmm. <clears throat> we try not to avail ourselves too often during the show, though. that's true. There we go. Well, thank you, Father. We are uh, in the midst of Holy Week now with, uh, with, with Holy Tuesday, and so I'd um, definitely li like to get into that. But we have several questions that, we, um, that we'd like to address tonight. We had a couple, couple questions about the, uh, the vaccine, mm -hmm. um, which, uh, of course, is uh, rather prominent right now. But one of our viewers wrote in with um, with an argument that uh, he apparently heard from a Catholic priest, and he wanted to run this line of reasoning by you and uh, and get your opinion on this, Father. So apparently, this this priest has, uh, said that um, taking the vaccine is essentially stealing cells from an abort from an aborted child. Uh, stealing is a sin that requires restitution. So if you were to confess uh, taking the vaccine and stealing these cells, it would be impossible for a priest to give absolution because the stolen cells could not be returned. What do you think of that uh, line of reasoning, Father, in regards to the vaccine? I think it's very poor reasoning. Really? 
I do. I think it's very poor reasoning. And I, I just, I mean, I've heard arguments concerning the vaccine that are certainly very worthy arguments. I don't consider that to be a worthy argument at all. Uh, stealing cells from the uh, aborted child. Um, first of all, in, in order to be bound to restitution, the, the person, you have to return the cells to the person. But in this case, the child is, is dead. And in this case, long dead, actually. It's impossible to restitution anyway. You know, even if you wanted to, uh, even if it was physically possible to, to do so, you could not physically return the cells to the aborted child anyway. <clears throat> so uh, since restitution is quite impossible, um, it is not required to be done for absolution. You know? um, this is just very basic moral theology, so I, I'm not sure what the thought is here. I think it's missing the point, though, okay? I, I think it's missing the point of the real evil of this, okay? Um, and it is, it is truly evil. Uh, the, the abortion of the child was truly a monstrous evil, no doubt about it. Um, and no, I don't think it is sinful to take it uh, because it's stealing uh, cells from an aborted child. <clears throat> but uh, one can make, I think, a, a substantial argument um, that it's wrong to take it because a child was aborted because of it. And carrying on the, the argument a bit, I understand that the, the vaccines so-called that they developed, because they're actually experimental biological agents, as doctors have, have pointed out, physicians and virologists have pointed out, <clears throat> that most of them have not been uh, developed really as normal vaccines are developed, right? They're really a, uh, a, an experimental biological agent that is, is actually a kind of genome or a gene engineering, genetic engineering in a way. Like a machine. <clears throat> sort of, implanting itself in the human genome to crank out, um, well, are they even technically antibodies? <clears throat> That's a good question. But in any case, um, you know, I, there have been arguments both ways on this, and uh, I've been looking at these arguments and trying to weigh them, um, and especially to weigh them in light of the Catholic traditional moral teaching, okay? <clears throat> both sides of, of this issue, uh, both, I should say, uh, that is, priests on either side of the issue invoke traditional Catholic moral principles and apply them and uh, the longer this has gone on and the more I see the arguments, the more I'm inclined to believe that this is something that has to be rejected. Um, because I, I do believe that it, it does encourage further experimentation on, uh, well, fetal cells acquired through abortion. I think it does encourage that today. It's not just like it's, it's over and done with, you know, that they took cells from the aborted children, developed the vaccines, and it's a terrible thing that they did, but we're so remote from that now that it has nothing to do with the original source, or it's so remote that it, it can't really, uh, our actions can't affect it in any way. But if they're actually having ongoing, ex ongoing experiments, 
uh, using the cells of aborted velted fe fetuses, which are, well, when we say fetus, remember now, Latin has the word fetus as a little one. That's what it means, a little one. And in fact, in this case, the little one is a little human, right? So uh, when we call it a fetus, we're, we're really speaking of it in the classical, I'd say Latin terminology, as a little human person, person really. And uh, insofar as we would be encouraging this macabre and uh, murderous trade, so to speak, this experimentation, we really shouldn't do that. Now, does that mean that every single person who takes the vaccine, uh, who might even feel compelled to do so, um, for some very serious reason, is mortally sinning? And uh, that's another question uh, that I, I'm not. I, I have to be very careful, and I think every priest is very careful, careful, to saying, "Well, I think you're guilty of mortal sin." for doing that. I think it's objectively a mortal sin to do that because we're binding lots of people to something that could actually cost them their lives and maybe their loved ones and possibly even their children. Um, you know, Governor uh, Andrew Quovid up in, uh, up in New York, right, is already putting in these these passports, these vaccine passports. And this is all, right, just a um, kind of trial balloon to see how they go over. Just This is just for certain entertainment venues, such as Madison Square Garden, but just wait. Uh, these things have a tend to grow, a tendency to grow. And the idea is that they, they really want to compel everyone to receive uh, the, their vaccine, to take their vaccine and I don't think they're done with it. As I say, I think that in itself, I think these vaccines are a trial balloon to see just uh, get everyone ready to take the vaccine. Once they've taken it, the next step and the next step. And finally, it will come down to the point where um, you have to take the mark of the beast. I think that's where it's all heading toward uh, taking the mark of the beast. And you will not be able to buy and sell if you don't, if you don't submit to it. Uh, and I think the vaccine is a step in that direction. But a big step, getting everyone to just submit to the vaccine from pressures, societal pressures. What they're doing actually is, is trying to create a, a, the caste system. You have the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. You have the clean and the unclean, right? And uh, the unclean are like the lepers of old, right? Who have to be uh, actually shunned and put in leper colonies, right? They're not fit to be uh, in human society. Um, separated from their loved ones, driven out by everyone, um, as accursed by God, almost, right? Um, they're, they're, they're actually creating this, this uh, division. So the question is whether we are going to um, quietly acquiesce to this or we're going to adamantly oppose it. And I think... Really, at this point, we have to adamantly oppose it. That's how I, I would feel about it. Now, you know, before I've said, you know, I, as a priest, I'm concerned about the salvation of souls. And if I have to go in to anoint someone who's dying and is crying out for a priest, uh, that's a very difficult decision. Do I think it's intrinsically evil to take this? 
No, in the sense that for an individual, I can see um, that there could be justification. If it were intrinsically evil, there could never be a justification for doing it. Like abortion. Abortion is intrinsically evil. There's no justification ever for aborting a child, taking, directly taking the life of a child in the womb. Um, it's always going to be murder, the direct destruction of the life of the child in the womb. Um, so I don't think it is intrinsically evil, but as I say, I think the cumulative effect of people uh, just acquiescing to the, to the vaccine is where the, the real evil comes in, right? And uh, so, again, on an individual basis, I cannot say that they'd be committing a sin by taking the vaccine if there was some um, very serious reason to do so. And again, you know, I'm thinking of a, thinking of a priest having to uh, get to a soul that was in need for his eternal salvation. You know, if I thought it was intrinsically evil to take the vaccine, then even that couldn't do it. But. Uh, uh, I know it's it's uh, it's very it's a very murky thing, and they put us in this position intentionally yeah. uh, to create kind of a crisis of conscience, I believe. Mm -hmm. But uh, in any case, um, one can listen to the voices of various traditional priests around the country and see that this is a difficult question. Okay, and uh, I might have other traditional priests who disagree with me. But it's perfectly legitimate for them to disagree with me because this is a theological position. And those who would make it a matter of uh, divine and Catholic faith, the position you take on the vaccine, they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> okay? It is a theological position based upon the application of traditional theological moral principles of the Church. And there have always been uh, voices on different sides of that question. And the church herself um, uh, has not decided on certain questions uh, like that, and one cannot anathematize those who don't agree with them. So this is my own personal view on the subject. Right? Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, uh, as far as the vaccines go, um, I, I don't think that argument about stealing cells is uh, really uh, of any value whatsoever. Okay. In this whole question, okay. um, but Father, about the uh, <clears throat> the vaccine being a very murky issue, I mean, I think it can be uh, can be easy if we're kind of viewing this from the outside to take a very strong stance one way or the other. But um, we, you and I, I both have have heard stories um, already of, of cases where perhaps a, a a grandparent is unable to see his grandchildren um, without having the vaccine or perhaps a, um, a, a parent of a child is, is unable to obtain life-saving treatment for their for their yeah. child um, because of the because of the vaccine so with issues like this it's certainly um, something that is not always very clear-cut and so yeah. do you think that perhaps there, there's a danger where um, where even traditional Catholics can take a very hard-line stance um, on, on this question and not not even consider um, some of these more murky situations like this that can come up. Yes, well, certainly. I, mean, one, I think one would have the would have the right to absolutely and adamantly refuse, and I th and I, I would encourage that. I would encourage that position, really. Yeah. 
Um, but I mean, I think we even might have received uh, an email from someone in that position, right? Mm-hmm. Who, just to be able to see his grandchild, mm-hmm. he was forced to to take that. Right? Is that right? Yes, Father. Okay, I don't know if you have that. I, I don't have the exact email, no, Father, but just mm-hmm. in general, yeah. 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 Okay. And uh, I think in that case, uh, the grandparent was faced with this. Yes. I, I will never see, perhaps never see my grandchild again. Yes. Because these uh, medical monsters, <laughs> I don't think it's the medical monsters. Uh, I, I, well, may, maybe it is because we have those who are um, in the name of medicine, invoking medicine, right, and health <laughs> to, to do these monstrous things. <clears throat> but more or less, actually, just administrators and and uh, you know bureaucrats, I guess, basically, more than anything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't think they can actually even, honestly speaking, in the, in in the terms of health or in terms of medicine. I think they're basically just speaking in terms of bureaucracy and auto- autocracy, mm-hmm. uh, saying no, this is our policy. You can't see the child, your grandchild, without uh, having the vaccine. Father, do you think there are any parallels between the mask issue and the the vaccine question? You know, one of our um, viewers referenced a previous program where we were talking about um, masks, and you said something along the lines of it it can be the charitable thing to do sometimes to wear a mask just because some people have such such an unreasonable, um, exaggerated fear over this, and so to wear a mask for them would be a charitable thing to do. Would the, the vaccine, would that same line of, of reasoning apply to the vaccine? I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think you can take the vaccine merely out of courtesy to appease others. I think the, the point is um, that, well, first of all, the vaccine is something that directly impinges upon one's own physical health, you know. Uh, now, one might say the mask also, okay. you know, uh, the, the mask actually does a lot of damage. And so, in fact, some are suggesting that um, uh, Uncle Joe, the man of steel, uh, uh, Biden, uh, actually wearing a mask is actually doing more damage to his health and, and uh, accelerating his dementia. Uh, and that may, may well be the case. Um, so if one sees that the mask is actually doing some severe damage to his own health, he has to refuse that too, right? Obviously, there's an obligation to refuse it. I'm talking about a case where it's just a matter of free will, whether you wear it or you don't. I mean, um, and, you know, is it a, a point where, you know, you could wear it as a courtesy to others who are, uh, let's say, uh, terrified because of the uh, propaganda turn, uh, turned out by it. There's instant death uh, involved uh, if you don't wear a mask. Well, I think one could. I'm just saying that one could do that for the sake of charity. I mean, personally, I think when I go to see someone who's ill and I have a mask on, that I'm wearing that out of charity for them and for those involved, because that's my reason for going through that in the first place. Um, you know, I've, I've actually been in to see COVID patients and done the whole hazmat suit thing, and Father Greenwell has too, and what is, it's an act of charity. It's not something we enjoy, but it's something that's necessary to get to the bedside of a person who's 
ill and possibly even dying. And uh, as we have seen ourselves a number of times. So that would be an act of charity there. You might, some might say, well, that's a concession to, you know, the whatever. Um, well, the way I look at it, Tom, is this. Um, during the war in Europe, especially World War II, there was what they called the resistance. And the resistance consisted largely of young people who were determined that their France was not going to become, not going to fall to Nazi Germany. Uh, Nazi Germany had already taken control uh, of the land, but they hadn't taken control of the people. And the resistance were the people who were determined not to let Nazism triumph in their country. <clears throat> they went about their daily business. They went through their routines. But behind the scenes, they were working to uh, purge Nazism, the National Socialist invaders. And I consider basically uh, those of us who do what we can in conscience do, and yet at the same time, uh, in, in other words, outwardly, but at the same time uh, working to go to the very heart of the matter in the state governments, especially, and to get policies in there that, that, that actually reverse this whole thing. Like in Ohio, for example. Our state senate here in Ohio <clears throat> passed legislation to curtail the despotic powers of the governor and his health, appointed health director, a bureaucrat, essentially. Um, if you read the Ohio Revised Code with regard to the powers of the health director, they are absolutely, horrifically um, totalitarian. I mean, they're, they're incredible powers to quarantine the entire state at will. I mean, inconceivable to me that the, 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 the state of people of the state of Ohio had allowed that to happen. But it, it was unthinkable, I guess. I, I guess it happened during the Spanish flu or whatever. whatever. I was terrified. Um, but in any case, um, and so it stood in the Ohio Revised Code. The Senate of the state of Ohio uh, actually passed legislation to curtail the powers of the governor and the, the health director. And the Republican governor of Ohio vetoed the bill. Even though it was passed by his, his own majority party in the Senate, he vetoed the bill. And the Senate came back and they passed another bill, essentially the same thing, maybe even stronger. And again, lo and behold, again, the Republican governor, the, a rhino, <laughs> vetoed the bill a second time. And then the Senate was able to get the votes to override the veto. So they overrode the governor's veto. And the governor was talking about, oh, how this is against whatever the Constitution. And this is going to put all uh, Ohioans' health at risk and all the rest of the same old jargon we hear from the Democrats. <laughs> Uh, but nonetheless, it was done. And uh, the reason that was given by the president of the Senate here in Ohio was because this is what the people of Ohio, our constituents, want of us. And so you actually have something, some vestiges of a representative government here in Ohio. Uh, thank goodness. <coughs> 
So uh, I, I, mean, I think this might have already taken effect, but I'm not sure. So when this question comes up now, as it inevitably will, about mandating uh, vaccines or continuing to mandate masks, you see, that's where I think the effort should go. Uh, not necessarily to, to having confrontation in the produce aisle at the local supermarket, necessarily over whether you're wearing a mask or not. <clears throat> um, although I'm, I'm certainly not going to tell people who do that, you know, that they're doing anything wrong, not at all. I just think that that is kind of a, a pyrrhic victory, if it's a victory at all, without the rest. In other words, taking it right to the heart of the matter and trying to uh, address where all of this is coming from. And uh, that's, that's where I think we need to focus and concentrate our efforts. Um, just a thought. Now, maybe this is a little off the subject, but um, getting back to the matter at hand, I think masks are more cosmetic, but when they start injecting things into your body that are going to actually go and to change the, uh, uh, the genes in your body, to actually uh, couple or somehow insert themselves in the genes in your cells, um, uh, then I think that's of a different order altogether. Um, and uh, no, I, I, I don't consider the question of the masks and the question of the vaccine quite in the same category. Okay. okay. Well, Father, let's uh, change gears a little bit because we had just a couple more emails that we wanted to get through tonight. Um, so this viewer wrote in and uh, uh, he says, I'm wondering if a Catholic who has grown up in the Novus Ordo Church and decides to go to the Society of St. Pius V, can he validly participate in the sacraments if, they re if one received baptism and First Communion and confirmation from an invalid priest or, or bishop? Would you not consider them Catholics? Would it be like a Protestant coming and participating in the sacraments? Well, uh, what we customarily do, and we have someone coming from the Novus Ordo <clears throat> to us, we actually uh, realize we have... Uh, some things to do, okay? It's not a matter of just walking in the door from the Novus Ordo and saying, well, I think I'll be a traditional Catholic now. Um, because we look upon the Novus Ordo as a false religion, right? As modernism. It's the practice of modernism is what it is. And so uh, we, we want to make sure that the person who comes from the Novus Ordo actually is well instructed in the Catholic faith. We can't assume that. We have to be sure of it, okay? So we give them a copy of the traditional catechism, we go through it with them, answer any questions they have, and usually those who come from the Novus Ordo do have questions. And there are gaps, at least, in their instruction. And so we do find it necessary to actually um, give them at least a very basic catechetical instruction in the doctrines of the Catholic faith. Not only is it a matter sometimes of just filling in gaps, but sometimes out-and-out -out misconceptions um, that have to be corrected. And, but then also we want to make sure that their baptisms are valid. And so he asked, well, if you have an invalid priest, then, th then that would be an invalid baptism. Not, no, I mean, you don't have to be a validly ordained priest to validly baptize. So the question is really, was the baptismal ceremony correct? Or was it uh, were any one of the three things necessary uh, 
missing <laughs> or falsified. I mean, you have to have matter, you have to have form, you have to have the intention for any sacrament to be valid. And the matter, in this case, is the pouring of the water over the body, preferably the head of the, of the person being baptized. And um, the, uh, the form, I baptize thee in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Um, in the traditional Roman rite, no amen, because this is the beginning of the spiritual life. This is not the end. So, um, <coughs> The Novus Ordo's added the word amen. I don't know anybody who's arguing that the addition of the word amen invalidates that. Okay? <coughs> um, but there has to be the intention too. And so we found that in the course of the years, occasionally people will say that, uh, well, the deacon who baptized my son gave a talk before he did it and said, we don't believe in original sin anymore, forget that idea, we're just welcoming little uh, Walter into the community, that's all. Um, now, that's not a uh, Catholic intention. Actually, that's a, con that's a statement that is contrary to the faith an intention contrary to what the Catholic Church intends, really. It's contrary. And so in a case like that, we would say at least there's a doubt about the validity of the baptism. Um, and so we'd make sure that there's a conditional baptism with a traditional rite. Um, so um, we, we find that people who come from the Novus Ordo who want to practice the traditional Catholic faith in its entirety um, may have a very good grasp of the faith, might not. We have to make sure they do. But one thing's for sure that I've seen, when they come and say they want to become traditional Catholic and practice the traditional Catholic faith, they have the virtue of faith already. They, they, they want to believe the Catholic faith. They want to know it in its fullness. And that's a beautiful thing to see. And so when they hear it, when they read it, they immediately accept it. Um, implicitly they already have by virtue of the faith in their hearts but uh, they still need to know exactly what the faith teaches, what the faith is um, so uh, all these things need to be done is this a very um, serious problem not for us, I mean this is what our time and our energies are for, to bring people into practicing the true faith now, someone who wants to leave the Novus Ordo uh, behind and to practice the traditional Catholic faith, I haven't known too many people who balk at that. Not many people walk in the door and say, I want to be traditional Catholic, I believe the Novus Ordo is wrong, but I don't, want to, I don't want you to take any time, I just want to start receiving communion and receiving the sacraments right away. So you're not, don't ask me any questions and don't, don't ask me about my baptism. I've never heard anyone uh, who came from the Novus Ordo with that kind of an attitude, saying, I want to be traditional Catholic. Uh, most people realize that they are, these are very two different, very different things, <laughs> right? And um, uh, having been raised in the Novus Ordo, one already, you know, if he realizes the gravity of the difference, the substantial difference between the Novus Ordo of modernism and the traditional Catholic faith and its practice, the traditional Catholic religion, then he would be eager to do this. He would want to do this, to go through this instruction to make sure that the sacraments he's received 
were in fact validly administered. Father, what, what about the sacrament of, of penance? Would you assume any problems with uh, Novus, one who had, who had been going through Novus Ordo confessions? Would you? Well, again, I mean, <clears throat> we've heard all kinds of things and verified them too. Uh, uh, people would tell us, well, I, I was going to an old Dominican priest and he was giving me you know, absolution in Latin and I followed along and he, it was actually true to the traditional form. And others say, uh, give them a hard time saying, well, did you really sin? Well, I didn't hear any real sins here. So, you know, just uh, God bless you and, and, and go away. Leave me alone. Uh, in fact, there's, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, Anne Barnhart, is it? Oh, yeah. who recently wrote a column, and I forget where I found this, someone sent it to me, where she said she went to St. Peter's and went to one of the uh, confessors at St. Peter's and knelt down and went to confession, and the confessor began, uh, was actually not responding at all. She kept saying, Father, did you hear me? Did you hear me? And she said he turned to her and let out this horrific hiss. He hissed at her. He kept hissing at her, telling her to, and then he told her to go to hell. Wow. And he was hissing at her like a snake. I thought that, well, that's interesting. <laughs> that's not a, a little bit. not a blessed experience. She said then, uh, as I recall, after that, she said she went to St. Mary Major. Dominicans are uh, confessors there, Okay. And she said she went to confession to a, a, an English-speaking Dominican at St. Mary Major, and she told the priest in St. Mary Major, the Dominican, what had happened to her in the Vatican. And he said, well, I'm not surprised, as though he's heard this before. So evidently this was not exactly a unique experience that she had. So... Um, I mean, you know, that's just one account of one person, you know. But there are any number of accounts of people who've tried to go to confession in the Novus Ordo and been rebuffed, abused, um, chased away, um, told that, that, but that no, they didn't do anything wrong. Uh, so again, you know, when I ask you a question, you just can't accept it on face value. <clears throat> that the Novus Ordo confessions are valid confessions. You just don't know. You know, even the ordination of the priest. Now, you don't have to be a validly ordained priest to baptize a child validly, but you do have to be a validly ordained priest to absolve someone. Uh, so, you know, if, if you can't administer uh, the sacrament of penance and actually give absolution to someone, um, then there's a question about whether the person is even validly ordained. And you'd kind of hope that the hisser wasn't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> telling the penitent actually should go to go to Hades. Um, so uh, no, there are things that you you do need to, you know, discuss with the penitent. But again, somebody somebody who comes from the Novus Ordo realizes there's something gravely wrong with it, and you would think that they'd be like uh, the Israelites escaping from Egypt. Uh, unfortunately, the Israelites got out of the desert and they kind of missed Egypt again, <laughs> you know. And you wouldn't want any, anybody to come from the Novus Ordo who was just too attached to it and says, well, I don't want to, you know, have the hardships of the desert here 
in the traditional faith. So I'm going to go back to the Novosoto again. But I'm talking about people who sincerely recognize that the Novosoto is not the Catholic faith and is not the Catholic religion, and who want the Catholic faith and want the Catholic religion. And will come to a traditional Catholic priest and say, Father, this is more important to me than than anything else right now, I want to be Catholic. I want to follow the traditional Catholic faith. Help me, let, you know, tell me how to do that. <clears throat> um, rather than show up with the attitude, okay, okay, what do I have to do to <laughs> go to your church? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and don't make it too hard or I'll go, I'll go look elsewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, well, if that's the attitude, then they're not there for the right reasons, obviously. Right. Well, Father, very briefly, we had, I thought, a related question um, in regards to a recent program that we did on Our Lady of Good Success. We we spoke of some of her prophecies, and mm-hmm. um, one of them apparently um, dealt with uh, Our Lady speaking of, of how the Holy Eucharist would be disrespected and trampled upon. And one of our viewers asked if that could perhaps be an argument for the validity of the Novus Ordo, because in order for the um, Holy Eucharist to actually be the Holy Eucharist, it would have to actually be a validly ordained priest. So does this mean, Father, that the, that the Novus Ordo ordinations would be valid? Well, now you asked about the Novus Ordo liturgy, the Novus Ordo ordinations. So uh, the fact is, though, if the argument is, if it actually holds, when it says, well, our lady said it, and the apparitions were really a good success, um, this is in the late 1500s, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, the time would come when the Blessed Sacrament would be trampled upon. Okay. Is this an argument that the Novus Ordo Mass and the Novus Ordo Ordination, right, for priests, are both valid? Because you'd have to have both valid for the Blessed Sacrament to be there. Okay. And, um, well, I, I guess I'd, first of all, to answer the question, I guess I'd go to go back and look in context. If, in fact, Our Lady said that the Blessed Sacrament would be trampled upon, um, you know, in a new Mass or with a new priesthood or trampled upon in the churches uh, or whatever, maybe she said it, maybe she said it that way, I don't know. I mean, the Blessed Sacrament has been trampled upon in various places at various times. I mean, the communists uh, taking over in Russia uh, did that, the chi- communist Chinese taking over China. Um, whenever they would uh, come to a, a Catholic mission, they would do that. There are accounts of uh, Christian Catholics uh, in Russia and in China during communist takeovers who would risk their lives and sometimes pay with their lives trying to rescue the Blessed Sacrament from being cast out and trampled upon. So, but if Our Lady, um, you know, the quote that is cited there says that in the Catholic churches this would be taking place. Now, maybe that's what she said. Uh, I don't know if it says that exactly in your quote. But the point is she's saying that in the Catholic churches this would be taking place. Um, Well, then, then I would say, well, you know, that would be an interesting question. But then, you see, you have a question of a private revelation interpreting it. But you have, on the other hand, the church's uh, moral and sacramental theology, uh, which um, actually does raise serious questions about the validity of the Novus Ordo priesthood and the Novus Ordo mass. Uh, 
So, uh, you know, you'd have to kind of reconcile the two of those, I would think. Uh, I personally believe that the private apparitions of Our Lady of Good Success are from heaven. And these are true. Uh, that They're not actually part of the faith itself, uh, the deposit of faith, as we know it. <laughs> but uh, um, I, I personally do believe that they are credible, worthy of belief, and so on. Um, now, Tom, pursuant to that, I mean, I have never actually said that I believe the New Order Mass is intrinsically invalid. Okay, I think there are serious arguments against it. I think it's doubtful, okay? Uh, I think it's doubtful, but if someone were to insist that it must be valid, then I would raise some objections and say, well, you know, there are certain considerations you need to make about that would call it into question. If somebody were to insist that it's absolutely intrinsically invalid, well, again, I would raise some questions that are in my mind that might not uh, let's say lend themselves that direction, you know. In other words, if you have a validly ordained priest, as you did after Vatican II, right, those who were, were ordained uh, before 1968 were ordained, presumably, according to the traditional Roman rite. And uh, they would be validly ordained, as far as we know, right? As far as the Church could tell, unless they had a contrary intention not to be ordained. Uh, so, you know, they're expected, accepted as priests. And if uh, we had a, a, a knew of a priest who was ordained before 1968, it was ordained according to traditional Roman rite, we would accept him as a validly ordained priest to this day. Um, and these priests did, in fact, carry on. They accepted the Novus Ordo. They were, in fact, uh, saying the Novus Ordo rite. Some of them were actually introducing the traditional Latin consecration formula because they had such doubts about the, the changed one of the new rite, but they were still saying the new rite around the traditional form, which they were kind of sneaking in there. I know a priest who did that, because they were very conservative. But then, when the changes came out, they were handing out the hose with everybody else. So, again, you know, I, I think people would say, well, I mean, those hosts that they consecrate well have been validly consecrated, and this is what they're doing. They're passing out those hand-to-hand, -hand. particles are falling, and people are walking all over the, the particles of the Blessed Sacrament. Um, obviously, if the Novus Ordo is valid itself, if the priest is not valid, then there's no consecration. If the priest is valid and has the proper intention in consecrating, and uses the correct matter and form, again, the argument for all men, contrary to exactly what is said in the Catechism of the Council of Trent, why Christ did not say for all men, okay? If one would make an argument that that's valid, okay, then you could have, you would have the trampling of the host there too. And but I'm actually what I'm leading up to is this: that is like the worst case scenario, okay? Because we see what takes place in the Novus Ordo, and uh, if that is just bread, if that's if it's invalid, uh, 
then that is only bread and wine. They're just passing around up there. Uh, then it's, you know, it wouldn't be the worst possible sacrilege. The worst possible sacrilege would be if it is actually the body and blood of Christ and you see what they're doing to it. You see the horrible blasphemies involved and the terrific sacrileges involved. If that really is the body and blood of Christ, all the more reason why people should escape from there and say, well, I've got nothing to do with this. Uh, when I see you know, how they treat what I believe is the Blessed Sacrament with such contempt, um, it's horrible. It's horrible. So, um, you know, Father, uh, Father James Wathen wrote uh, one of the seminal books against the Novus Ordo liturgy, The Great Sacrilege. Right. And uh, again, it could only be a great sacrilege if it really is valid. And uh, now, you know, I, I know back in time, uh, thinking back when I was even seminary at Icon, I think Archbishop Lefebvre himself expressed doubts that many of these Novus Ordo liturgies were valid questioning whether even there was any faith or any valid consecration because of the, the clergyman, the minister, <clears throat> how they conducted the ceremony and so on. Uh, I don't know that I ever heard him say that the Novus Ordo Mass itself is necessarily invalid. I don't recall ever having heard him say that. Um, but, uh, you know, when people do ask me outright, do I think the Novus Ordo liturgy is invalid I mean, just intrinsically invalid, I usually answer, well, I hope so. Because if it is valid, it's the worst possible, worst possible sacrilege there is. It really is the great sacrilege. <clears throat> you know, if we could, uh, Tom, return to a um, theme we were talking about earlier, the vaccine situation, and Holy Week. Here we are, Tuesday of Holy Week. And we have, it's like the entire world on fire with a craving for that vaccine to save us, save us, save us. But really, there's no salvation in this or any other vaccine. <clears throat> what we need is to mingle the blood of Christ with our own blood. That is the only real vaccine. And the real, the real virus is sin. That's what's killing us. That is what is killing us. And we need to be vaccinated, as it were, uh, against that. We need to receive the only real effective antidote, antidote to the poison of sin. <clears throat> and uh, that, that, is, uh, that is our Lord and his sacrifice for us. Here we are in Holy Week. And the whole world is chasing after this experimental biological agent, right? Uh, as though it's going to uh, deliver them from death and bestow on them a kind of immortality of some kind, I guess. Although it's just the beginning of death, really. It's a concession to death. It's almost like a death cult. But here they've closed the churches. And let's face it, most of the churches weren't really 
administering the divine antidote to sin anyway, okay? So I think God allowed them to be closed. Um, I was just reading, I think it was a Pew poll or survey that said that only 5%, this was hard for me to believe, but only 5% of even the Novus Ordo churches are actually fully opened, even now in the United States of America. So this shows how they've just absolutely abdicated, just surrendered before this whole thing. Um, so, um, but we have to realize the, the only real salvation is not from chasing, you know, science as they, as they tell us, you know, as though the, it's some sort of a divine being there, like Nohestan, remember Nohestan, the, the brazen serpent that, the Israelites in the desert raised up because they were being bitten by serpents. And all I had to do was look to see the serpent raised on the Tao cross. And that alone would save them from the power of the venom of the serpents. And so eventually they destroyed, one of the prophets destroyed that brazen serpent because it was becoming an idol for the people. Rather than a symbol of the future savior, they were turning it into an idol. Well, we're, we're there. We now have science, Nohestan, the brazen serpent up there, uh, coiled around that cross. Sounds familiar, like the symbol, right, of medicine, and just adoring that, 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 that idol, uh, as though salvation can come from that. And it's not. It's, it's, it's obviously... Uh, very false, false hope and a false religion. It really is. It is all a false religion. Um, and leading to the falsest religion of all. But um, what about ourselves? I mean, you know, when it gets right down to it, it has to come to the fact that we uh, follow our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to follow him. We have to be faithful to him. And all that tells us we have to be willing to take up our cross every day and follow him. And St. Paul and others who spoke about this made it very clear. The only way we can really be faithful to our Lord and follow him is to keep his word. Our Lord said, those who keep my word will not die forever. That's when the Pharisees uh, wanted to, well, they were picking up stones to kill him because that's when our Lord told them that before Abraham came to be, I am, right? And so he testified to his own divine person the, um, the fact is, keeping the word of Christ for us, we know it is following his divine revelation, the revelation that was consummated in him, the revelation that we find in the sacred scriptures and in sacred tradition. These are the work of God here on earth. Sacred scripture and sacred tradition constitute divine revelation to men. We have to follow those things. That's why we're traditional Catholics. And uh, we'll continue to be. Um, I just ask this, it's kind of a challenge, I guess, and I probably mentioned this before. <clears throat> but when people are contemplating the mysteries of our Lord's passion and death, maybe they should think about this. You know, our Lord spent three hours on that cross, even apart from all the other things he suffered, okay? All of the other things he suffered, which could have killed an ordinary mere mortal man, okay? But our Lord was keeping himself alive by his divine power, for the sake of suffering, 
And for the sake of his love for us, he was keeping himself alive to suffer for us because it was the will of the Father. Our Lord spent three hours on that cross. And you figure that out and you realize, well, you know, an hour is 60 times 60 seconds. Okay, 60 minutes and 60 seconds per minute. 3,600 seconds per every hour. And multiply that out and you come out with something like, I think, 10,800 seconds. 10,800 seconds our Lord hung on that cross. And I wonder... If we ask in the world today, if those who actually claim to love our Lord and who want to follow him would follow him this far, if our Lord said, for every second I spent on the cross, I'm looking for one soul to spend one second enduring what I endured on the cross. For one second, I'm asking each of 10,800 people in the whole world who invoke my name and believe me and call me their Lord and Savior to be willing to do for one second what I did for you, hanging on the cross for one second. I wonder how many. I don't know. I'm not going to ask you. I'd have a hard time agreeing to that because when you think about what our Lord was suffering there, and you realize what he was suffering was superhuman. And you realize, my goodness, I mean, how many would be willing to be nailed naked to a cross and hung up before the world to die and suffer the, not only the indignity of it all, but just the excruciating pain of it all? One second would be like being struck by billion volts of electricity all of a sudden. I mean, our hearts would explode. Our brains would explode with the pain. I mean, it would kill us instantaneously. Rather spectacularly, you know, one second of that. I wonder how many would actually be willing to do that for our Lord. But he was willing to do it for you. And he was willing to do it for me. And didn't complain. It's amazing. It's amazing. The love of God. Astounding. But he was, God made man was willing to feel that and to experience that suffering. And at the same time, knowing of all the souls that would still be lost because they would reject him. <clears throat> but the only comfort and consolation our Lord would have had at that time would have been uh, the thought of those who would be saved. And our Blessed Mother stood there and St. John the Evangelist stood there, blessed souls, St. Mary Magdalene stood there, and our Lord knew that those dear souls needed him to die for them. Mary Magdalene, certainly. John, yes. The Blessed Mother, oh yes. She knew that too. She's the only one there who knew what was being done and what her son was accomplishing on that cross and who he was dying on that cross. She's the only one who knew that. By the grace of God, you and I now all know by our faith, okay? So let's live our faith. Let's live our traditional Catholic faith. And so we really, really believed it. No, I'm not saying, let's say, yes, Lord, I'm willing to spend that one second on the cross for you. That's a very personal thing. And our Lord has not asked us to do that, amazingly. He hasn't asked us to do that. All he asks us to do is to take up the 
little inconveniences and trials and uh, irritations of the day and bravely, patiently shoulder those for him. And uh, that's a far, a far cry from a second on the cross, but it's all he's asking us to do right now. So let's give him that much every single day of our lives. Right? Follow him in patience. Yes. So. Well, thank you for that, Father. I know you have a very busy schedule with Holy Week coming up, so yeah. we will certainly uh, keep you in our prayers during this week. Well, thank you, Tom. And I'll, I want our viewers to know that I'm remembering them at the altar, too, yeah. all during this Holy Week. And uh, every, every month we have a Mass specifically offered for their intentions. So That's we're right. grateful for their support, all of you. Absolutely. Thank you, Father. God bless you. Thank you, Tom. You too. Yep. Thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.